Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Here's Gooding. Welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So Dr. Pierce Gooding is a research fellow at the Melbourne Social Equity Institute and the University of Melbourne Law School. His work focuses on disability law and mental health politics. He is the author of A New Era for Mental Health Law and Policy, Supported Decision-Making, and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Pierce has worked with a range of international organizations and agencies, including the UN Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights to Health and the United Nations Economic and the Social Commission of the Asia Pacific. Pierce was previously a research fellow at the Center for Disability Law and Policy at the National University of Ireland, Galway holds degrees from the University of Melbourne and Monash University. He has received a Discovery Early Career Research Award from the Australian Research Council and was awarded a Menzies Australian Bicentennial Fellowship to serve at King's College London. So needless to say, you are very accomplished. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome again. So we're going to kick off our first question with, I'm sure, an inevitable one. Where does your passion for disability advocacy and activism work come from? Well, I mean, I suppose like most people in this area who are working who don't have a disability, uh, my interest and inspiration comes from a family experience. And I suppose uh, I witnessed lots of opportunities opening up for me and, and closing down for uh, a relative of mine, uh, a very close relative of mine who, who had a disability. And so I think that's really what sparked my interest. But the more I learned about disability and the disability rights movement and the more people that I met who uh, were really accomplished activists uh, and scholars and lawyers, uh, the more I became just sort of passionate and interested in the field. That's great. And why focus on mental health? Is it along the same lines, you know, friends or family members? Who... That's right. Uh, and I suppose I was just witnessing firsthand a system that was very much geared towards a, a strong biomedical model. Uh, and I found the social model of disability to be one of the most compelling kinds of counter arguments to that uh, hyper biomedical approach to distress. So I found a lot of inspiration from a lot of uh, activists in the psychosocial disability movement or amongst the, what they describe as users and, and survivors of psychiatry, because I think they provide really compelling counter arguments uh, to some of the power imbalances and, and hyper-medicalization that I was seeing in, in the mental health system. 
I see. So I think you once wrote, state parties have an obligation to provide access to support for decisions regarding psychiatric and other medical treatments. Forced treatment is a particular problem for persons with psychosocial, intellectual, and other cognitive disabilities. Mm -hmm. So can you explain in very simple language in layman's term where yes. state participation begins and where individual choice ends? Is there a clear-cut way to define this line? What about involvement of family members or in cases where they don't have any sort of uh, social support? Mm -hmm. It's a really, really good question. And it's uh, one that I've been trying to answer for my whole career, I think. Uh, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities um, was really centered around this idea of autonomy with support, or at least that was one of the really core ideas behind the CRPD. And that's really what this whole debate boils down to. Uh, what is autonomy with support? So just as we have uh, ramps for people to access public buildings and private buildings, uh, there is an argument by proponents of the convention, or it's just a fact now that states are obliged to provide uh, effectively ramps for people to make decisions when they require assistance to do so. But for example, entering a contract to purchase the house can be quite a daunting process for anyone, but for people who need additional communication support, uh, there is an obligation to ensure that that is provided. So rather than dismissing someone as lacking capacity and therefore denying them the opportunity to enter into a, a tenancy agreement or a, a financial agreement, uh, there is a requirement to ensure they have support and then ensure that there are relevant protections uh, so that uh, a person uh, doesn't have that right taken away from them um, and that maybe there are some kind of safeguards so that people aren't exploited, so that they aren't taken advantage of and so on. Um, and people with psychiatric or psychosocial disabilities or mental health related disabilities are particularly prone to government intervention when it comes to psychiatric treatment. Um, so this kind of forced intervention is a routine part of public mental health services uh, in every country that has a, a functioning health system. And in those countries where there may not be a sort of formal health system, there are examples of persons with psychosocial disabilities being uh, chained to trees or being held in, in cages. Uh, and I think this is a widespread kind of practice. So there is, I suppose, coercion or forced intervention happening across the world, both in formal mental health services in countries like the US and Canada and Australia, uh, but also in traditional settings in, in the family home. And so trying to uh, address this global problem is uh, really challenging. Uh, and I suppose a movement of persons who have used and felt abused by services has developed over the last uh, few decades, but I think it goes back further than that. And they have really tried to push this idea of, well, yes, people experience crises, but this need to intervene shouldn't 
happen with force, it should happen with support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fine balance, isn't there? Making sure that we are valuing a human life and the rights and opportunities of them, but at the same time, making sure that if they do need to suffer the consequences of some crime or whatever, you know, it's in appropriate proportions. I know you had a case a couple years ago on Burke Street, right, with a 28-year-old guy. That's right, yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, there was a, a, a man in my city who drove through a crowded street and murdered many people. I think it was over a dozen. Um, and he was actually found unfit to stand trial. And that meant that he wasn't seen to have the capacity to follow the criminal proceedings against him. Now, that's an example of legal capacity really being restricted for people with disabilities. And in a way, it's designed to protect the person so that they aren't subject to a trial that they don't understand, which could end in their punishment. But on the other hand, by denying that involvement, or at least by saying, well, this person can't be you know, subject to the same processes as others, they risk not being given the same due process safeguards and the same kind of protections that anyone else would be afforded in a normal criminal trial. So if we're saying that, well, he should be held responsible and he should be subject to this trial because, uh, you know, equal rights for people with disabilities, so he should be subject to it just like anyone else, then there's a risk that people will be experiencing a different kind of disadvantage, I suppose, where they don't understand what's happening. But uh, in the work we did, we argued that, well, as long as they're afforded the same due process safeguards and they have the availability of all the same defences, then that's equality. Uh, and he was eventually convicted, is my understanding, and he wasn't found to lack the capacity to understand his crimes. So he wasn't found uh, legally insane, to use the uh, outdated terminology, but uh, here we call it a crime of mental impairment or not guilty by reason of mental impairment. So that's a really, a really good example of, of one quite tricky area of law in which uh, it's, it's going to take a lot of work to convince people of, of the appropriate way to address this according to uh, disability rights theory and, and practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so tricky in that particular case, especially that you were just sharing about, because he, in the article that I read, he was very logical with the co different consequences. If this happens, if that happens. But overall, I feel like this issue is a very tricky one. So you mentioned the UN CRPD, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which, you know, your work is highly influenced by it. And so I have several questions for you. The next series of questions will be about that. So why is it important for countries to ratify the UNCRPD? So for countries like the U.S., as you may know, we have not ratified it. And uh, what are the con consequences for not doing so? Well, the consequences for not doing so to me seem uh, that, that one sort of a country is stopping themselves from being involved in an international community of people who are seeking to address the long-standing disadvantage experienced by, by persons with disabilities. Now, the U.S. has a tradition of, of not signing and ratifying uh, international 
human rights conventions. Uh, but on, on this particular issue, I mean, it's a real uh, missed opportunity for American citizens uh, with disabilities reap the rewards of this incredible international collaboration to um, achieve the CRPD. And of course, uh, US advocates and activists were absolutely crucial to the development of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So uh, at least the rest of the world has benefited from their uh, insights uh, and particularly their experiences around the development of the American Americans with Disabilities Act, because I understand that that provided a really crucial set of foundation ideas or some really important theories and ideas and experiences from using the law to address disability-based discrimination. So it's a shame that uh, US citizens aren't then able to benefit from the um, collaborative input of international activists because the convention had an extraordinary rate of participation of, of disabled people and their representative organizations I believe that of all the UN human rights treaties, it had the highest amount of input from civil society organizations. Uh, and it comprised of hundreds of disabled people's organizations from all over the world. That's an extraordinary wealth of knowledge. Um, and by cutting a country off from that, uh, it's, it's a missed opportunity to, to reap the rewards of that combined human knowledge. Yeah, I most definitely agree with you. And it's it's a shame that we're not we're not a part of it. Do you think the US ratifying the UNCRPD will help offer expertise and technical knowledge to other countries who are not as advanced in the disability disability rights field? If yes, how? Well I think it's perhaps a matter of credibility if uh, the US isn't signed up or haven't ratified the CRPD, then it's going to be difficult for other countries to, to take you know, US advocates as seriously because they, they say, well, you, you can come here and talk to us about what kind of technical solutions we could find, but uh, your country hasn't even signed or ratified. And you think it would affect them offering the expertise and technical knowledge and doesn't have as much um, of a influence because we are not part of it. We have I not signed so. on to it. I, I think so. Okay. But that said, I, I'm pleased to see lots of uh, excellent US advocates working around the world and, and having an enormous impact because of, of the sheer weight of their own knowledge and uh, their own involvement with um, disability politics for the last you know, few decades. So since the passage of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, how has rights and opportunities improved for individuals with disabilities around the world, especially for people with mental health disorders? What has countries who has ratified the convention gained and those that have not ratified the convention lost? That's a great question. Well, in terms of the benefits and, and opportunities that have been opened up by the convention, uh, I think the main one is shifting people's idea of disability from the charity-based or medical-based model to this idea of a social model or human rights-based model. Uh, here in Australia, the late Stella Young uh, made 
an excellent TED talk where she talks about uh, ending inspiration porn. And she really lays out the social model of disability in, in one of the best ways that I've ever seen it done before. And I think the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities really backs that general shift. And then that would play out in so many areas of, of life, be it related to making public spaces more accessible to or uh, trying to change the mental health system and move it away from a coercive approach to responding to people's mental health crises. Yeah, um, and perhaps I'm being repetitive, but what do you think would be the one, the single biggest loss for countries that are not a signer to the UNCRPD? I think it would be not affirming the dignity and inherent human rights of people with disabilities. I think that's it, a profound symbolic act to affirm the dignity and human rights of persons with disabilities. I think the CRP provides that. What if we move away from the symbolic? As you know, governments don't function always in the symbolic and some of the more tangible uh, factors. Well, the more tangible factors would be not distributing resources according to the needs uh, of persons with disabilities to exercise their fundamental rights. Thank you for that, for that insight. So as you know, you work with many heavy issues. Yeah. <laughs> topics are very serious and very <laughs> dense. So moving on to happier topics. <laughs> um, what is your proudest achievement in regards to improving the lives of people living with mental health issues? Uh, mm -hmm. What rights and opportunities have you helped to broaden for them that you're especially proud of? Well, I don't suppose I could say that I have, you know, you'll have to ask other people if they think I've contributed to uh, expanding the rights of persons with uh, mental health or psychosocial disability. But at least for me personally, one of the proudest moments for me was achieving my aim of trying to shift the conversation, contribute to shifting the conversation towards support and supported decision-making for people who are in crisis. Uh, and people with intellectual disabilities and mental health related conditions. That's wonderful. So what seems like a never ending interview is actually ending <laughs> with one last question. In your lifetime, what kind of utopic world would do you want to work toward for people with psychosocial disabilities? What are the three achievements you want to have made in your lifetime in this field of work? I'd like to see an end to mental health legislation because uh, I think at the moment it promotes discriminatory approaches to, to the mental health. Second, there needs to be a comprehensive range of supports for people, a whole lot of options for people who are experiencing crisis. And that might involve um, family conferencing, family meetings. It might involve a less fearful approach to the extreme experiences that people have hearing voices or experiencing profound despair. It might involve personal advocacy where people aren't always encouraged to be better or cured, but rather are just assisted to live their lives. And third, I think I would like to see um, no more jobs like mine. I think a utopic kind of vision for this movement would be that there aren't people who are specialising in achieving disability rights uh, and trying to change laws and policies that will just become an accepted norm that these kind of entitlements and accessibility measures exist 
and the range of disabilities are just accepted as a different part of the human norm rather than as such a massive difference, which is uh, how it's currently perceived in so many areas of, of law and policy in, in society. So those are the three things. And I'm sure, you know, yeah, more, more, less uh, serious conversations like this and more, more joyful ones, I think. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That was very insightful and although very dense, but, you know, somebody needs to work on these issues. And I'm glad that we have such a talented and well-learned person. You have so many degrees and so much rich experience with these amazing organizations. And thank you so much for being in this field. Thank you so much for taking these very hard issues very seriously and you know, I know it's probably emotionally very taxing at times working on especially mental, psychosocial, cognitive uh, disability issues and policies. So thank, oh, well, thank you, you so much. much and thank you for opening up the conversation. I know your uh, work is focused on, on travel and fitness and other things. So I really appreciate you opening up the conversation to an area that it is difficult to talk about, but uh, you've been a... Um, I found it really easy to discuss this with you and I, and I hope it's been useful for you and, and, and for your viewers and listeners. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates that means we want to hear from you our listeners send us an email at tgow podcast at gmail.com let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel how do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries what language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability we want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. And this is